0: I think what Lowell was doing here and what really taught me an important lesson as a designer is the more specific you are about the themes you want to focus on, the stronger the game is because the easier it is for everybody to like get into that thematic zone. And they can interpret and be creative within that space, right? But if you give them that starting point, it makes such a huge difference.
2: Insightful. And a lot of fun. I think those are the two words I would use to describe my time with Ray. Wow, this was a fun interview. Some guests are just a joy to talk to. It was a challenge to only talk to Ray for a few hours. We dive into several design concepts, and I cannot wait to have them on again. Ray doesn't hold back, and we talk about the real work behind making games. Now, Ray's Apocalypse Keys is on Kickstarter as this episode drops. I was able to sit down with him and learn the stories behind all his games. Content warning. This is a grab your wallet episode. The array of games we discuss is dizzying and you might be tempted. His mindset around solo RPGs blew my mind. Our discussion about designing powered by the apocalypse games may surprise you. And make sure you stick around until the end to learn the challenges that the Apocalypse Keys playtest presented. Now, my patrons on the Third Floor Wars Patreon make this episode free for your ears. Join me in welcoming the most recent patrons Dev Dragon. Robert Valdez, Christian, Derek Waite, Hollow Man, Zemslaw Riba, James Nevitt, Steve Maroney, Matt Cherwin, and Michael R. Underwood. Okay, sit back, relax, and enjoy my time with Ray.
1: Love to unplug and play games around the table. Greetings friends and floorheads to tabletop talk from third floor wars. If you love tabletop gaming, you are in the right place. Listen as Craig delivers in-depth discussions and interviews with game designers, creators, insiders, and experts. Learn from the people making and playing the role-playing, miniature, and board games you love.
2: Howdy friends, Craig here. Today we're talking to Ray Najati of Sword Queen Games, the makers behind our haunt Oathbreakers and the new Apocalypse Keys. Ray, welcome to the third floor. Thank you so
0: much for having me. I'm glad to be here.
2: So I, um, uh, Sean Nittner is the one that got us connected, um, who's one of my favorite people. And, um, you know, Sean's like, yeah, you know, Ray's putting out this Apocalypse Keys and, and i you know, been looking over your work and then I started looking at everything you've made and I'm like, good Lord, you are busy. <laughs>
0: Yeah, no. I used to have a problem. Uh, I'm, I'm a, I'm a little better now because I started working in bigger games. But I used to have this addiction to game jams on itch.io. So I mostly blame that for my. Yeah. <laughs> In- increase productivity, to say the least. <laughs> <laughs>
2: That's hilarious. So, Ray, I'm sure you've been on other podcasts and you get the uh, the one question that every podcaster asks, which is, how did you find gaming? But the way I like to phrase it is, there was a day that you knew nothing about tabletop role-playing game and then it was put in front of you for the very first time. Can we go back there?
0: Yeah, totally. So that was a a rocky time uh so i had a friend who wanted us to play DD, i think it was 3.5 right and so i was halfling thief but it had that typical i hesitate to say D problem but it had that typical ttrpg of its time thing challenges challenges (laughs) right where people were just doing their own separate things i have this very solid memory of our dwarf staying by the dungeon door failing check after check after check because he really wanted to do this diplomacy role and get it to work while the rest of us were trying to kill a gelatinous cube and the other two were trying to like behead a troll get its skull create a bomb and my halfling was just turn after turn Firing arrows, killed the gelatinous cube by myself, got all the XP. Everyone was upset with me. Um, (laughs) So that was my. (laughs) And I I decided I'm never going to do this again. This is really not fun, which is very funny to say right now.
2: It is so you bounced off that first session, Ray, but somehow you ended up at a table again. So when, well, first of all, when how roughly how old were you when you when you played that D and D session?
0: Yeah, it was pretty late. I was fourteen, right? So I know a lot of people oh, okay. get into it like younger, but yeah. but I was like fourteen, fifteen. Yeah, and I just couldn't understand the people. And this is you know once again, this is one of those challenges. I like how you put it, of older games where a lot of the heavy lifting is on the GM, right? And so it was his first time running, D&D ever. We were a very unrowdy group. The players were not doing their part. So I just want to stress, like, it was a lot of things happening. Um, But yeah, so I bounced off really, really hard that time, and it was like 14, told myself never again.
2: But that was not never again. So what was the next time someone lured you in?
0: yeah yeah lore is the right word because it was star wars right? so it was,
2: oh no what edition
0: um it Do was saga edition of course i still Very have nice. i managed to track down the books afterwards it is it is such an interesting edition right because it was sort of like <laughs> D D dreaming about fourth edition but using star wars to get there first was yep. kind of like man i can get really geeky about dtrpgs that <laughs> i think about it
2: you're on the right show <laughs>
0: But yeah, so it was Saga Edition. I wasn't invited to the game, so very rude player behavior would not recommend. But my partner and my roommate, we were living together at the time, were talking about the Star Wars RPG they were invited to. And I was like, Star Wars? Star Wars? I need need to play this game. I invited myself (laughs) to the game. And it was electric it was i was used as a once again do not recommend but i was used as the gm's tool for the first session like the gm had a very specific idea of what he wanted me to do like i thought i was gonna play like a con artist pretending to be a princess leia type was that i was thinking and he was like what about a soldier that can like beat up jedi and i was like you know that also sounds very cool i will not say no it got to the point where this is so geeky before the first game he took me aside and he was like i'm gonna give you a cartosis blade and this is what a cartosis blade does <laughs> if it hits a lightsaber it will no longer activate yada 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 and so no one else knew what was happening so i was basically introduced as the gm's pc
2: right, to right. wreak
0: havoc on everybody else who was a jedi I rolled 20 after 20 after 20. I destroyed <laughs> lightsabers left and right. Uh, one dude cried. It was such an excellent <laughs>
2: introduction. Uh, there's so much trauma in these first two sessions, Ray.
0: <laughs> Which may have informed my design style now that I think about Suddenly it. Suddenly our
2: haunt makes so much sense to me.
0: Right, right? So, But I love that campaign so much. I remember... I remember like staying up at night after we'd have a session and I couldn't sleep because I would just think about what happened, what our characters did and how much fun it was. I was like just absolutely addicted from that moment on.
2: So when adult Ray looks back at that, like maybe at that point Ray, you didn't know why, right, that it was that you obsessed about it, you thought about it and so on and so forth. But reflecting now as an adult looking back on it, do you have a sense of why it got us hooked so deep in you back then?
0: Yeah, I think a lot of it was... As a player, just being able to be so imaginative and creative and intuitive in the moment, the way a story feels so wild and collaborative. Like you sit down, you tell yourself you're gonna play a game, and you have no idea how it's gonna, how it's going to go. Like a lot of the times it'll go in the exact opposite direction of what you had in mind, and sometimes it's because of how the dice rolled, but a lot of times it's because there are other people collaborating with you, right? Yeah. And so I really think the absolute joy of TTRPGs that I love so much is that you are always interacting with other people. It is such a deeply social and creative thing, I think. Yeah. even So I've I've designed a few solo TTRPGs, right and people have said well this is just a one player game and i go is it really though i feel like when i sit down to play a solo game i'm sitting with the creator and the designer right like we're playing oh, I like together their perspective yeah even if they're not consciously there with me right their voice is so much with me and so
2: Ray, right, That is really interesting. me. I've never thought about that. The closest I've had with that is GM storyteller games, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. right, where I feel like there is a GM, but it, and it's not a mechanic. It's, mm-hmm. It is the it's the creator's voice. Right. I'd never thought about it from a solo perspective. That's a really great way to think of it.
0: Yeah. Yeah. No, because I really thought about it because I realized when I was designing a solo game, I would put so much more care into it compare I mean I don't want it to sound like I don't you know put in care in the other ones but as right. as as I write it my language is so burden. much more loving. Yeah and so much more caring and yeah yeah so so that's that's I just love how social and how how TTRPGs as a hobby really connect you to other people. That's what I love yeah. so much about it.
2: So as we um uh, go to the Ray Museum of Design, right? And we see all the exhibits up there and uh, I'm taking my daughter through and explaining to her, oh, I backed that game. I love this game. <laughs> but at the very beginning of it is this story, right? Of of these two do uh, games and the saga game that sunk in. But as we go through and look at the exhibits, what are some other landmark moments for you? So when you think about where you are now as a creator, are there certain games that you were exposed to or certain sessions or moments that you think really inform how you make games now
0: yeah actually for one thing i think so i was playing games a long time before i started trying to make them and Uh you know not as much compared to other people there are people who are playing it for decades before they start doing it but but for me it never occurred to me that i could make a game until i started playing powered by the apocalypse games Mm -hmm. and so there was also like just a it was a bit of a hurdle just to get out of the D&D bu- bubble in the way that like playing D&D makes it more difficult to play newer games in a way. Yeah. So, but when I got out of that bubble and I started playing a lot and there was a local cuz I'm from the Philippines and there was this local convention. I also want to say like I realize American conventions are so huge. So this is just a few people. I want to stress that, right? Like For a long time, I was talking to people thinking, we're talking about people within the 20s or 50s, right? Like, 100 is huge. like, no, there are like thousands and thousands of people on an American convention. Where do they come from? Anyway, so.
2: It's uh, it's overwhelming.
0: (laughs) I saw the pictures and I was like, there are that many people in one. Where do they get the, anyway, so. um, (laughs) But basically here in the Philippines and Manila, Uh, We we have this like regular monthly mini convention thing. That's cool. And one of the, well, this is before the panini, before the end times, basically. And so (laughs) one of the themes was for that month, they really wanted us to focus on like Filipino themes and cultures. And, you know, there aren't a lot of TTRPGs about that topic, right? Because they mostly come from the West and even access to TTRPGs is a little difficult here because of the language barrier and all that. And mm-hmm. so I thought to myself, well, I can just make a game then, right? Uh, how hard can it be to make a Power by the Apocalypse game? <laughs> Such hubris. I just want to point that out. Such <laughs> and I was like, I have two months. I can make a Power by the Apocalypse game about like post, post, post apocalyptic robots, supernatural, you know? stuff this is
2: something simple (laughs)
0: something super simple right inspired by horizon zero dawn but super filipino super magical i can do it in my sleep i did not (laughs) like i oh i I, bet i suffered greatly under my hubris and people still had a good time which really taught me an important lesson from the beginning which is how much players bring to the table even if the game is nowhere near complete nowhere near good like there there is still i went over the game recently for my patrons and it was very painful but there were some good parts <laughs> in in that game and then so i spent like about a year just like casually play testing it every so often every month i'd have at least one session but i think what really like tipped me over into oh i really like designing games was so this is like true for a lot of people within my wave of designers, creators, uh, which was, it was the sad mecha jam on itch.io. The theme was just mm-hmm. sad Mecca. That's it. You just had to do emotional and anyone who's watched Gundam knows how emotional, yep. right? These shows can get. And so I decided to, and then plus, there was a there was a limit. It could only be four pages, right? So I think that really helped, right? Because you have to, yeah. you're here to make a game. It can't be more than four pages, which is, which was really daunting at the time. I cheated a little bit with three columns uh, within those <laughs> four pages. But basically, I was like, what if I smash together Bluebeard's Bride oh, and... Geez. And Titanfall 2, like I just, I just, oh, I really love Titanfall 2. And so I was like, I just want a talking mech AI situation, right? And so when I look back at that game now, I realize, wow, I'm still designing within that thematic space because the idea is there is a pilot within their mech crash landed onto a hostile planet, you know, behind enemy lines and the players are fragments of the AI that have survived the crash, Oh, that's
2: interesting. And
0: each fragment has attached itself to a specific emotion of the pilot and the memories that come with it, right? So you can only play regret, anger, love, and fear. Those are the... Oh my gosh. Yeah, and so like, when I was playtesting the game, I was really shocked with I think this is when it was really magical for me, right? There, there is. This is what I really chase after as a game designer, and I'm so, I'm so grateful every time it happens. But I'm still so entranced and amazed each time it happens, <laughs> which is you put so much of yourself in the game, but the game becomes far more alive than you can ever imagine it being. That can only come alive when you see other people play it, and so. I was really shocked to see these amazing conversations between the characters when one character is playing Anger, speaking to the character playing Love, and them coming from two different sets of memories. And instead of HP, you would corrupt or lose your memories. Right. Interesting. And then seeing the characters really struggle with what that meant. And so I was... Like in my early 30s, I was diagnosed with temporal lobe epilepsy. And so part of that, among other things, means that my memories aren't really great. And so there was a time, there was like about, I think, a year where I really struggled with the idea of like, who am I? If I don't have my memories, am I still the same person if I lose access to them? And so it was a really tough time of really like going through that. And it was so interesting to see my players having those same conversations with each other, but in a really, like, it was intense, but it was safe because it wasn't themselves, right? They were talking in character, but, you know, they were saying things, yeah. Mm-hmm
2: was that it was that intentional in your design no. to help facilitate that or did it just surprise the hell out it of you that it seeped so out so much it?
0: yeah because i just thought oh i mean i'm gonna be honest with you craig it was just i hate hp as a mechanic i'm gonna replace it with something else which has been my ongoing <laughs> challenge to myself
2: and so <laughs> the hp windmill <laughs>
0: Right. And so I just replaced it with memories just because that's what made sense to me. And I didn't realize it was because of that relationship I had. Right. I was really and this shows up a lot in my work where I'm not conscious of my perspective and what affects me until I see other people shift into that perspective. Right. And so, yes, I was completely unaware. And like it was so shocking to see people within like two, three hours of playing Come to the same conclusion that took me a year to get to. About isn't that my so memories? Yeah, yeah. And, and then since then, I was like, and I remember the first time it happened. I was like, well, maybe it's just a fluke. And then each play test, each different group, it kept happening again and again. And I was like, oh wow, this game is much better than I am. Is. Uh... <laughs>
2: Yeah, you, I mean, that means that somewhere the, the the seeds were planted right in there, even mm-hmm. if it wasn't intentional. Right. So question for you. Um, you know, I think that I think there's an impression and by no means do I think it's accurate. Um, in fact, it might be just the opposite that, you know. McGay and Vincent did a lot of heavy lifting. Right. With creating Apocalypse World. Right. And they created a really pretty strong structure to build. Absolutely. off Absolutely. Of. And. I feel like that there's a perception of going, well, you know, just, just do make it powered by the apocalypse. Right. You hear that kind of thrown around (laughs) like, like that's going to be easy. Right. Like, and, and and I can, as somebody who doesn't design games, I could see that. Right. Okay. It's like, okay. You know, the resolution system is all set. You make playbooks. All right, let's go. Right. We're, we're done. I'll be, you know, I'll have it ready in 15 minutes, (laughs) but it's obvious it's not that easy. Um, and, And I'd be curious if you have any insight on where that gap is right from this perception that it would be easy but the reality is, as you learned firsthand, it's not.
0: Yeah. Oh, that's such a good question. I really think that, number one, there is this idea of, oh, Power by the Apocalypse is a system, right? It is a generic system, is what people think. And I don't blame people for thinking that because when systems were more skill-based and they were more direct and there were you know, it was, it's a bit easier to say, well, I'm just going to replace this part with this part with this part. Right. Uh, I'm also surprised at how, even though Powered by the Apocalypse has been around for around 10 years, there hasn't been that much shifting within Mm -hmm. the mechanical space. Like, especially in the first few years, you could tell people didn't quite understand what what the bakers were were doing or what they were going for like they didn't realize how much of power by the apocalypse apocalypse wrote is connected to the facts that it takes place in an ap- ap- apocalyptic you know Great horrid point. setting right and so people kept yep. just transferring it over in ways that didn't make sense there was this very bizarre time and people still you know hold this opinion i i I personally strongly don't agree with it, but at the same time, people you're allowed to believe uh and, and perceive things as we like. But there is this weird belief where, oh, Power by the Apocalypse is a genre creator, mm. right? You think of a genre and that's what the system is good for. That is so complicated, because what is genre <laughs> in the first place? Right. If the film people cannot figure it out, how how, how are we supposed to do it in TCRPGs? Um so, yeah, and I think so I've tried powered by the apocalypse like different times among different systems and 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 I what I learned especially through apocalypse keys is how much powered by the apocalypse depends on what matters to you and. Mm the game, the themes that you want to create. So for example, I mean, I could talk about Apocalypse Keys design forever, but uh, a lot of people were confused about how easy it was to trigger the moves, right? And, And that was on purpose because one of my frustrations, as much as I love playing a lot of Power by the Apocalypse games, I would get frustrated when there was a move that was hard to trigger, right? Like it had a very specific circumstance or I had to do other things first. And so I would try to remember to do it. And then, you know, a few sessions in, there would be a moment where I could do the move and I would forget because I was so used to thinking, oh, I can't trigger this move right now. And then the the moment would be gone and it would just not feel great. Right. So I wanted to purposely address that personally, just because I want the players to feel like I can trigger this move almost any time I want. Right. And so 99% of the moves in apocalypse keys are like that. And people were like, I can just do it if I want to. I'm like, yeah, you're here. You are powerful monsters holding back the apocalypse, going against scary things. You yourself are one of those scary things. So, you know, you can just trigger it anytime you want. And so when I saw people's strong reaction to that, I realized I cannot be the first person who thought of this. Right. And I, I really don't think I am. So but it just means that it's not part of the like the conversation right and so and a lot of people reacted to different ways and in my mind i was like oh but these are such small tweaks this is just the kind of game i want to play and i want to run and it just reflects that and but people were kind of losing their minds over <laughs> various bits and pieces and i was like no i'm just taking things i love from different ppta games and putting them into one frankenstein Baby. <laughs> yeah.
2: So so looking back at your uh, I'm going to make a four page BBTA mm-hmm. game for the first time mm-hmm. and I'll keep it a real simple theme. Um, <laughs> what what was the first brick wall? Right. So it, it, and again, looking back now as somebody with far more experience and maybe you didn't even know you ran into the wall. Right. Um, yeah. So do you can you remember like maybe or, or maybe another way to put it instead of a wall is maybe the first tripwire you you, you just walked past.
0: <laughs> oh yeah, for sure, for sure. I think it was definitely this is something I like. I, I've seen games that break this rule to, to fantastic effect, but one thing that I realized was the more variation I put between the playbooks in how to trigger things or how it worked, the harder it was for people to figure it out, which mattered a lot Interesting. for Become One because that was a game that was a one shot and you only had two to three hours to play it. So it helped if the playbooks acted in a similar way so that each of the players, as they were learning could help each other. Like, And it's very like subconscious, they don't even realize they're doing it, right? And so it made me think, OK, I have to make sure that even if the game has nuance that you can learn from, like, you know, I want it to be easy to pick up. And then there's a challenge in mastering it, maybe. Right. And so yeah, that's yeah. that was like one of the major challenges and tripwires I had to uh, because I thought, oh, love should act differently from the other emotions because it's love was what I was thinking. But yeah, so I shifted it instead. It's more like the other ones. But it also created this more interesting thematic situation where people are like, is there any real difference between love and anger? Are we just the same? We're the kind of conversations that are coming up. And that was so, from you- a mechanical standpoint, right? <laughs>
2: So you create asymmetry between the playbooks that causes like a a doctorate in philosophy. (laughs) Yeah,
0: that is, oh my gosh, that happens so often in my games. It's really, really absolutely funny. It is so, I remember early on in Apocalypse Keys, I was still thinking, because there is a way to track your monstrosity, it's called ruin. And it leads you closer and closer to become the thing you were fighting against. And there was a part of me, I was thinking in the back of my head, man, should there be one for humanity? Because you're struggling with, are you a monster? Are you human? And I didn't like the feeling of it, but I couldn't put it into words, right? I was thinking it. And then during one of the early play tests, (laughs) another player, and I really want to stress, they didn't realize I was thinking about this, right? So one of the players was, but, you know, looking, oh, so is there a way to track humanity or something in the game am i missing it and i thought is that a sign should i put it in because they're looking for it yeah i was starting to do that initial designer panic that i've learned how to get around now but back then i was like and then but then another player said it is easy for us to tell ourselves how we are monsters but it is not easy for us to tell us how we are human right and i was like oh I'm going to pretend that was the idea from the start. (laughs) That is such a good. (laughs) But and it's very true because the monstrosity in Apocalypse Keys does mirror marginalization. And there is a way that we are made to feel other that is very easy. But what makes you human is so much more difficult to define
2: right so it's the connections and everything so oh god that's fascinating yeah yeah. so guys the insider insight series is my opportunity to sit down with designers developers artists writers and creators and learn how they approach their work i try to understand their process inspiration and the methods for crafting their creations so we're going to roll right into ray one of the first games that i I'm not familiar with but I wanted to put it first here (laughs) on our little agenda and that is Oathbreaker so I'm just going to briefly describe it to the audience based on the copy that I uh, came across and then we're going to dig in so Oathbreakers embodies the mood and theme of the gritty urban fantasy comics from the 90s and by the way once I read that I was like okay (laughs) let's do this (laughs) Your uh, your Arcanists were betrayed by a sinister conspiracy and must gather enough clues while navigating a complex and treacherous world of intrigue and magic. Oathbreakers uses a twist on the belonging outside of belonging system, which listeners should be familiar with because we had uh, Avery on the show um, and we've talked about this system. Um, So now that we've got an idea a little bit um, where it is, I want to go to the beginning, which is where I always like to start, right? And I'm going to phrase it similar to what I did to you discovering gaming. So, no thought close to what Oathbreakers became was in your head. And then there was an acorn. And do you remember what was the first acorn that made you start the ball rolling and thinking about this?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So I was playing with uh, one of my dear friends now, uh, Lowell Francis. So Lowell and his wife, Sherry, have been, they work on a lot of different games, lots of different hacks. Uh, We were playing on the gauntlet community, which is Mm -hmm. my, my favorite place to play online. And so Lowell ran for us a, it's just like a Powered by the Apocalypse hack of Changeling the Lost, right?
2: Interesting.
0: Right. So the moment I say that people go like, oh, what, what, what is this? So Changeling wasn't something I was personally familiar with. I was really more of that D&D train versus the Road of Darkness train. I was not cool enough to be on the Road of Darkness train. So, you know, uh, I tried, but not cool enough. And so...
2: <laughs> just not enough eyeliner. Yeah, <laughs>
0: yeah. I'm just here to, like, kill things. You know, being a vampire, very difficult. So, <laughs> didn't really get into it. But when Lowell ran changing, I, oh my gosh, my mind was blown. Like, it was... Such an imaginative setting, but with the power by the apocalypse engine. Because, like, like World of Darkness is just. I've tried the the White Wolf system a few times. Like, aberrant was was the one I played the most. A superhero, the dark, gritty superhero Mm -hmm. one. That was that was the one I played the most. But it was just kind of hard to get into. So this was really like the perfect way. And there was so much about the game that was so haunting. And so magical, and so angsty, and like there were there were sessions where like half of the virtual table would be in tears. I remember, like, no
2: kidding, yeah,
0: it was just such a beautiful, beautiful game. And a lot of it was because of the mechanics, the way Lowell translated the original stuff into into this. But so one of the things I love, like, what to me personally makes a stronger game. So once again, you know, we're we're moving between like so. Games used to be like we want you to be able to do anything, right? right. And so I think that's why some people lean a little too hard into D and D nowadays because no, we can just make it into whatever we want. Yeah, <laughs> but I think what Lowell was doing here, and what really taught me an important lesson as a designer, is the more specific you are about the themes you want to focus on, the stronger the game is because the easier it is for everybody to like get into that thematic zone. And they can interpret and be creative within that space, right? But if you give them that starting point, it makes such a huge difference, right? Because if I say we're playing a DD d game, that could mean a million things, right? Because it yeah. depends on the GM and the players and this and that. But if I say you're going to play a changing the lost PPT hack in this case, In the way lowell designed it it was more focused on the motley on the social connections because it was sort of built a bit on masks and stuff Mm -hmm. and and it was more focused on really like just sad sad magic like like the more clarity you had as a character clarity would be something you mark the more clear it became to you that you were no longer human right because the concept of changeling is You were like taken by the fairies, by the fae, and put into this world. You come back to the human world, but you were changed, right? You were no longer human. And it was just so haunting, right? And so I love that system so much. And after we finished playing it, I just couldn't stop thinking about it. I was like, wow, like taking World of Darkness and translating it into something else. And I thought, you know, there's a game I've been trying to play over and over again, and I couldn't quite get it. And that's Mage. The Awakening slash The Ascension, I had tried several times over the years to play it. And I don't know about the rest of the world, but within my circles in Manila, the consensus of Mage was it is incredibly a hard game to play. And so if you are not a good player, like if you are not on top of it, like it will fall apart. And I was like, oh, I want to make it easy.
2: Be a so mage. what was the consensus on that though, Ray? Why why did why did the Philippines decide that? <laughs> so what was it, what is it specifically about mage and and let's say in versus werewolf or versus vampire? What is it about mage that made it so
1: hard?
0: Yeah, yeah. The the the, the, the general consensus is like oh, mage is the thinking man's game. This just kind of interesting, and you know a lot of it is because like in many spaces right I don't think this is just the Philippines but in a lot of places in a lot of creative spaces there is an emphasis on what cis men perceive to be like you know the the desirable traits or my perspective on this our agreed upon perspective is the truth of things and so that's definitely what it was like here like it was I mean I used to show up So even though I'm a trans mask person, um, I am femme perceived, of course. I didn't know I was trans until recently anyway, so, you know, but basically I would show up and people would like literally, I had this like one dude be like, guys, a unicorn has shown up. Who knew that other people other than men would want to play games? And this happened like, (laughs) I was already in my thirties, in my mid thirties when this happened, right? And so... Um, yeah, the spaces are very like super exclusive and, and it was just this, so even though not everybody believed it, it was just sort of like, well, that's what certain number of dudes say the game is like. And so that's
2: what, right. Right. I read that. I read that. And so that's what the truth is.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And so like, and it was funny because I remember someone running it for me and he was shocked that I quotation mark, could guess what the rules are. And I was like, no, I just study this esoteric stuff too. And that's just, that's just the game drew from that. So (laughs) that's just why I know these (sighs) things. But yeah, so like, it was really, I think that was like the main consensus, right? That it was very difficult to play well. And you really had to know your magic and you really had to know what you were doing. And it was also supposed to reflect the difficulty being a mage right versus a vampire and all these other things and you know so on and so forth like but yeah so 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 definitely I wanted to I think in general when I design games I wanted to make it as easy as possible to be as cool as possible like that is my my goal (laughs) it's like I want players to feel like yeah I'm so cool and so yeah and I really when I think about mage and stuff I think of course of John Constantine and I think of the Sandman and I think of Vertical Comics and I think of Dave McKeon and so I was really drawing from that space when I started working on Oathbreaker so the cover and the and the layout reflect that a lot I am one of those like Mm -hmm. I'm one of those like bad habit (laughs) game designers that creates the game while I'm laying it out like
2: you're not the first one that has told me that know, and, and like, like, like Diogo, habit. um, yeah. Diogo does that with his stuff. And, um, uh, Eric Alexander was on the show who does a lot of mothership stuff and he does the same thing. And, and the impression I get, and, and you tell me if this is true for you, is that what, that's what informs you on the intent of the game it as does. part of that design process. Is that accurate?
0: Oh yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So, so, Apocalypse Keys is really funny in that that was one of the few games where that wasn't the case because <laughs> by the time I was working on Apocalypse Keys, um, so I have like pain and energy level issues, right? Uh, mm-hmm. That I didn't really recognize until the panini happened. Yeah, you know, everyone's having a hard time with the panini, and so a lot of stuff got exacerbated. So with Apocalypse Keys, as I was working on it, I had to choose between I can lay this out. And do my usual fun stuff with the fonts and my usual fun stuff with the the pictures and stuff and laying out or i could just focus on getting this into a google sheet so i can play test the game for people online and so i had to make that choice and that was hard compared to my usual style with smaller games of laying things out because so much of the visual aspect like informs it right and 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 i figure that out and so instead what's happening now with apocalypse keys because right now as i'm talking to you we're still finalizing a lot of the art so like for the last few weeks i've been getting like amazing emails of artists that's gotta be so cool so so cool like working with evil hat is like so cool because i'm like artists more than one we know people (laughs) they're making beautiful things and so it's and 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 Trivia, who's doing an amazing job as an art director, is also like really working with me to make sure like my vision of Apocalypse Keys is there. And it's so weird because I'm so used to just I can get this free art from free photo from Unsplash.com. And (laughs) yeah, and so it's so different instead to be working in that space where. You say what you want it to look like, and someone else creates it amazing we artists are amazing <laughs> and so, and it does so much to get the vibe across of the game, right and yeah. so uh which was which was like, yeah, I realize we're really going all over the place, which is part of uh, one of the challenges of apocalypse keys is when a lot of people hear urban fantasy mystery, hellboy inspired, and once again, like coming from that you know, perspective and who gets to say what is true. So a lot of, um I'm just gonna be honest, a lot of cis dudes <laughs> were like, so I'm expecting Urban Shadows. I'm expecting Monster of the Week. Why are these monsters so powerful and why are they so emotional? Why are relationships important to them? Like a lot of the feedback I got from the open play test was it doesn't make sense that I'm a powerful monster. But relationships matter to me. They shouldn't at this point because I'm powerful and a monster. <laughs>
2: that, that's that's fascinating. So so now here's the question I would have about that is you've got a choice to make as a designer, right? One choice is to take that feedback and go, I I need to set the expectations better and I need to make it clearer or and I'm gonna just say it, or fuck it. Right. Right, right. right. Yeah. And and so how do you, how do you sort through that when you get feedback like that? Not just that specifically, but in general, right?
0: Yeah, yeah. I think like Apocalypse was like the biggest example because like for the rest of my game, so within the indie the itch.io designer space that I'm in, right? On Twitter and stuff, a lot of us are ridiculously queer. <laughs> like a lot of us are just like <laughs> I, I remember <laughs>
2: I'm not Costco queer. We're talking like oh, yeah. <laughs> craft like, brewing queer.
0: That is so unfortunately <laughs> true. I have to say that now. <laughs> like, oh, that's great. I remember when, <laughs> like, well, so so Sean and I met through, but, like, by Apocalypse Keys, but we really, especially because, like, Sean has really been there for me, working through Apocalypse Keys. We used to, like, meet every week, talk for hours about the design and go over stuff. Um, and so... I, I think at one point I told Sean. Sean, I think like I realized I've been with Matthew, you know, my 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 husband uh, partner. I was like, I've been with Matthew for like t- almost twenty years, more than twenty years. I wow. Th- yeah, right. And so yeah, I'm very lucky. Uh, and I was like, but I think I think I'm Polly. Like I, I, I I've been talking to Matthew about it, and Sean was like, yeah, yeah, and he was like, you know, I don't know that many indie designers who aren't Polly. I'm gonna tell you <laughs>
1: right now.
2: And I was like, took you so long, right?
0: <laughs> that has been the general reaction. When I tell people I'm poly, they're like, oh, yeah, you didn't know? I was like, what? <laughs> <laughs> like, people were joking about apostles Keys, the Bond questions. They're like, oh, this is just Ray's, like, Polycule Simulator game, right? I was like, what?
2: <laughs> Isn't that funny? God, that's incredible. Yeah, but yeah. But, yeah. Right, yeah. I got to bring us back to Oathbreaker, yes, so yes. stay with me, right? Yes, Ray. yes, yes. So,
0: Oh wait, Here's sorry. I actually didn't answer the question about like what to do with the feedback.
2: Well, well I, I, we started it, right? Yeah. And that's that's where I want to go. So yeah. you, you play mage and you hear the the myth of mage, which is a bunch of booha, bu- right? And you but but it sounds to me like the setting concept was attractive to you. Um so it, 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 am I accurate in saying that it was uh, the theme And the genre and the feeling that that drew you into it first? Mm
0: -hmm. Oh, yeah, absolutely.
2: So when do you get the ridiculous idea of using the belonging outside of belonging system? Because I got to be honest with you, Uh, the first time I saw Oathbreakers, I'm reading the sentences. I'm going, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then that last sentence slapped me in the face because that was the last thing (laughs) I would have expected. So. I guess I want to start with when does that come into play or did it start with something else or did you know from the beginning you were going to use that very unique way of, Ooh. of, of, of playing a game?
0: Yeah. Oh my gosh. So I, I have this ridiculous habit <laughs> as uh and Sean and other people really laugh at, uh, at me about this. Um, I have this ridiculous habit where if I'm trying to figure out a design challenge within a system, because I really love studying systems and getting the hang of them and iterating on them, if I'm trying to figure out a challenge in a system, I will just, instead of making huge dramatic changes within the game, I just create a new game that uses that uses like an iteration on that. So with Oathbreakers, number one, I came across Sam Zimmerman's Revolution, which is mm-hmm. a belonging side belonging game that takes place uh, during the French Revolution, right? And it uses that system but with tarot cards and so when right. we play tested it i was like whoa i was so my mind was blown right i was like yeah. because you had to so the tarot cards replace the tokens but then if you wanted to do specific mood moves you would have to have those tarot cards you would have to have a swords card or a wands card or a major or if you had a major mm. arcana, then you could do any of those moves it was so smart it was so simple but it was so fascinating and i told sam ever since we played we played like revolution i have been unable to to like stop thinking about that mechanic can i please borrow it Interesting. and use it yeah uh for and then so cuz this was around the time i was playing changeling and i was getting the idea for the game so i put that in and then in but like by and what i was struggling with at the time which is the first oh no it was a second bob game that I worked on. What I was struggling with at the time was what do regular moves do? And this is like mm-hmm. a conversation a lot of designers within the Twitter space were like uh passionately talking about on Twitter. So it's it's, it's hard to have a as opposed to rationally
2: talking about it on Twitter.
0: It's <laughs> hard to have a conversation on Twitter. We were trying. We were really trying. <laughs> but But all it takes is a bad day and reading someone's tweet wrong, you know, so and taking things very personally. So but basically, I saw what like Riley Rethal was doing, like just removing regular moves completely. Mm -hmm. And I was like, what's that still work? And I was like, instead of being drastic with and removing the regular moves, I'm like, I'm going to use Oathbreakers. And then I'm going to put on this like tarot thing from Sam and the no regular moves from Riley. I'm going to put it with my inspiration from change. Thing, and then it's going to be Oathbreakers was the idea. And that's what I really, I really just enjoy experimenting with mechanics and shifting and pulling yeah. and pushing and breaking. Like that's what I, it helps me better understand what, is the internal core elements of a system what really matters and doesn't matter
2: and and by so by by frankensteining them together it exposes that in each other game is that what you're okay yeah
0: yeah because there are times when i've broken things to the point where like oh this isn't working anymore this isn't fine like this isn't like i have this like bob magical girl game that i really like actually every time i make a magical girl game it just breaks like that's like Uh, I'm like so sad about that, <laughs> but you know, Girl by moonlight exists. So that's okay. But, uh, basically, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, I love doing that so much. It's, it's one of the things uh-huh. I love so much.
2: Now did you have all of those puzzle pieces together before someone played it? Or is that something that came through iteration? Ooh. So
0: what I like to do when I play test the game is I, <sighs> I like to pretend the game is as complete as possible from the player's okay. side. So they don't, and I do this because, and this is really like, I think this is just a personal choice. I've seen other people enjoy playtesting while the game is still like basically in shambles and the players can, yeah
2: they race to the table. Yeah. Yeah.
0: yeah. And that's fine. Right. I think, I think that's, mm-hmm. so, but for me as a designer, when I play test, I like as much as possible if I can pretend it's a complete game and it feels like a complete game because I find a lot of that informs the the play experience. So I want to give a really quick right. example in that I created a trophy dark game called Brinkwood. Well, right now it's called In the Face of Our Despair, but we're going to shorten it down to Brinkwood Despair. Um, Because I'm very dramatic. I have a lot of dramatic titles. (laughs) And so the thing is, the Trophy Dark system and the the Trophy Dark game, it was originally from Cthulhu Dark and they tweaked it. Very cool Mm -hmm. stuff. Very lovely core resolution mechanic. The interesting thing is, in Trophy Dark, which I've played and run quite a few times, people were hesitant to use the ruin mechanic right the um because they were
2: which is a shame because it's a huge part i mean it's a huge core of the game it's a
0: huge part of the game right it's so important and it's so much fun but people are like oh no i don't want to mm." and so i thought maybe so at the time i thought well this is just a part of how the mechanic works right the thing is when i created brinkwood despair because in trophy dark you are treasure hunters going into the forest and you are literally Fucking around and finding out that things are bad, mm-hmm. <laughs> like it go, it doesn't go well for you as a treasure hunter, nor should it because you are invading this space, right? Versus in Brinkwood, despair, I turned it around into because this is a prequel game to Brinkwood, Blood of Tyrants, gosh, anyway. So I turned it around and said to you are fae guardians, you are protecting the forest, oh. right? The vampires have come and they're going to corrupt the forest, it is not about winning. You cannot win against the vampires. You are only here to make sure that you can say what essential part of the forest survives. What can you, who can you save, who can you rescue, knowing you cannot save everyone, knowing that you are going to fail, right? And so just because that was the premise, I didn't change the mechanics. In any way whatsoever. In fact, I made it a little more difficult. I, I caught a corruption instead, but it's the same mechanic. I made it a little more difficult to get rid of the corruption. I made it a little easier mm. for you to get it just because it flattened the numbers, just a tiny bit. Um, but people were like really gunning for the rituals and really gunning for the corruption mechanic. And I was like, what is happening? And because the players, the characters were saying things like, I have to do this. I have to protect the forest. It doesn't matter what happens to me, right? Even if I get swallowed up, even if I get corrupted, I become a vampire. Just what matters is I help save this one thing that matters. And just because you are no longer a treasure hunter and you are a fae guardian, that mechanic changed so dramatically.
2: I never would have thought of that. Yeah. It makes makes total sense to me. Yeah. So
0: ever since then, I have been really personally obsessed with, I have to make this game as complete as possible because people's perception of the premise and the themes are going to change how they interact with the mechanics, which goes back to my thing of like how Powered by the Apocalypse and Forge in the Dark whatever are not generic systems because who you are in character will inform how you use the mechanics.
2: I could not have asked for a better setup for a question that I have, have been been sitting here with. Wow, <laughs> people are going to think we scripted this. So I have not played uh, Trophy Dark or Trophy Gold, um, and I've only read it. And I'm, I'm I, I preach all the time. You can't read an RPG and understand how right. you have to. It has to hit the table. It has to hit the table before you can understand it, right? And the one thing that I struggle with. And again, this is from somebody who has not played it. So like my opinion means nothing. Right. Um, But w- where I struggle or try to understand is how hard is it to play that game in character as opposed to as the character, like because it's, they have such specific mechanics that seem, and the mechanics seem to like, and and let's be honest, um, blades of the dark does this too, right? It pulls you out of your character so you can do, mechanics and you go back into your character is that do you see that with trophy or i don't know if i'm making any sense
0: yeah no no i completely get you and this is this is something i also think about a lot as a designer like how much a player is pulling out and how much they're staying in character and i feel like designers have different like perspectives and desires with that with that insight so for me personally, with Trophy Dark and Trophy Gold, I've ran and played both a lot because I really I really wanted to see how the mechanics would change. There's just a few changes in Trophy Gold, right? But the premise is so different. And those few changes are so dramatic, right? As, mm-hmm. as sublime and subtle as the design is. And so I find that as Trophy Dark, people stay within character more for better or for worse because they're like... Uh, a lot of them are like, "Gosh, this really sucks. I'm such a horrible person." In fact, every time they get to the devil's bargain part, it's a nice break from being a bad person. <laughs> Isn't that funny? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like, like I have had people tell me, "I love Trophy Dark so much, but I can't play it because I have to be a horrible person the, <laughs> the whole time." Right? Versus Trophy Gold, it's interesting because you are after gold, you are after things, but. What's interesting is because like, for example, the fighting mechanic is so cerebral, right? And so what happens is it translates to the player and the character being tactical. Because what happens Mm -hmm. is, do I really want to take on this monster? Like, do I have a feeling that I can take them on directly? Or do I want to find an indirect route, which is so interesting because that is supposedly, and I, and I want to speak like I'm speaking from the perspective of someone who doesn't design in the OSR space. Right. And so I think the people who actually design in that space have more, you know, uh, to say than I do, but within the OSR space, what confused me a lot is the rules, the few rules that you have in OSR games are about fighting, but I kept being told over and over again by designers and players, but you're not supposed to fight. Like people have told me if you are fighting in an OSR game, you have failed already. Like you have failed to play the game properly. And to me, I'm like, so why are the rules about fighting and there are no interesting <laughs> there are no other mechanics to support other forms of play, right? If once again, I really want to stress uh, I would rather have OSR people talk about this, right, rather than me.
2: But this- No, but it's a it's a legitimate, like I mean, if anything, it's just a dichotomy, right? It's it's something that cognitive it's a cognitive resolution, which I've, honestly I've never thought about it like I thought about it in context of like D&D and stuff like that that you know people say it's not a game about combat but yeah that's what all the rules are exactly but but I've never thought about the conflict between because you're 100% right right if you're if you're playing if you're playing um, uh, DCC, right, or, or any like OSR adjacent game, and you're you're going to die if you get do too much combat, right? But yeah, yeah, ninety percent of your rules are about that. Yeah,
0: so I yeah, Look at you
2: Ray, <laughs> like teaching me stuff. I like this. I but like you know, talking to you, Ray.
0: But yeah, so so it became this kind of. So like, how do you
2: resolve that in your head?
0: Right, and so what is strange was, and this is what um, people like Tony Vicenda, plus one XP, and a few other people are trying to address in the games that they're working on, is. So they're trying to teach people what is known within the community space, right? Because these rules are unwritten, that you are not supposed to fight. You're supposed to find other ways to like get around combat instead. You're supposed to think on a meta level outside of your character, right? You are supposed to be a player most of the time, right? And this is very right. different from the what I feel is a part of the story game experience where, because as much as possible... I want someone to pick up one of my games and it doesn't matter if they've never played a TTRPG before. And it doesn't matter if they've never played a story game before. Uh, And this is also why I have an an, an obnoxious number of examples (laughs) in my games (laughs) because I want people to see conversations play out, right? In in how you play a game, I want to see people like think out loud and oh, I want to do this, but would my character do that? And so I tend to write out those examples um right right because there's a disconnect if if you came from critical role in dimension 20 then people feel like oh i have to be a voice actor and an impromptu actor and rpgs are not you know improvisational acting right they are very different things so yeah so basically like with trophy gold i could see how jesse the designer was like i mean i don't know if this was he was doing i'm just saying i feel like Jesse was like, how can I get people to know that they have to think tactically as players, mm-hmm. knowing that this is what their characters could also do, right? And so Trophy Gold and Trophy Dark being inspired by the OSR are like trying to mechanize how to push you out of your character to think as a player more often, which right, is which is right. what you are supposedly encouraged to do within the space, which is super interesting.
2: It is. And and. <laughs> The irony is, is well, I, I'm old as dirt, right? And the irony is, is that I, I am just now dabbling in OSR, and part of the reason that I do, have not just gone elbow deep into OSR is because I was there,
0: mm-hmm. right? I'm,
2: I'm 50 years old, right? Like I paid, yeah, I played White Box D and D, you know, um, you know, and I like, I like, I, I, I picked up Dungeon Crawl Classics as an example, just because it's one of the more recent ones. And I like read it and I was like, God, this is so familiar. Right. (laughs) (laughs) And and I played it and when I was done with it, it's a good game. Right. Uh, So I'm not knocking the game, but I was done with it. I was like, well, yeah, I've I've kind of played that. Whereas now coming back, um, you know, to where the hobby is now, this is where I want to be. Right. Cause this is all brand new to me. Um, and, and there's, there's OSR people that are doing stuff different, like you just said, right. And they're doing and, and it. And so by no means am I knocking it because I know, I don't know what I'm talking about cause I'm just now doing it, but I see stuff like what, what like Diogo does. Um, like I've been knee deep into primal quest right now and, and see what's happening. So it, it is fascinating, but I, th- th- that long, like it's like, like, I don't even have a guest. I'm sitting here talking. I hate it when I do this. <laughs> um, What's interesting to me is that I wonder how much of that has to do with the origins of the of back when I was playing. The origins of all of this is chain mail right. and, and and, you know, strategy games and tactical war games. Yeah. So I wonder how much of that is is a hangover from that. Um, Ooh, whereas, you know. Yeah. Does that
0: make sense? Yeah. No, no, no. And that's something that I think about a lot, like when I work on, especially because I like to iterate on systems. Um, so my dear, dear friend, Josh, he will be, so he helped me work on like Apocalypse Keys and Twilight Throne. Um, like it was really funny. We, I would call him and be like, can we talk about Blades in the Dark engagement roles for four hours? Because I need four hours to talk about it with you. Um... And so I was so happy when we could officially hire him as a, as a consultant for Apothos Keys, going like, I've been using all this free labor. Ah, now we get to pay you. But anyway, so <laughs> one of the things he brings up is what is vestigial, right? And maybe it's because Josh is a biology professor. But basically, like, what is a vestigial tale or what is a vestigial aspect that should not be part of the game, but we think has to be? Right. So for example, oh, that's... to me, that's what HP is. Here I go again, hating right. on HP. Um, I go like, why is this? I can see why this is important in miniature gaming, in miniature war gaming. Right. But is it really important for me as a character in the story about HP? Right. And so in Twilight Throne again, because it's a it's based on Forge of the Dark, but it's a social political dark fantasy game. Like how much of the original blades framework do I really need if I'm going to shift the narrative premise so much? And so I think like for designers, like a lot of us have to like really look like what's prestigious? What am I taking for granted that I feel like has to be here? So for me, I I love Powered by the Apocalypse, but I hate HP. I hate stats. <laughs> so so and and to some people that is integral, but at the same what? time, like the Bakers themselves have said Powered by the Apocalypse is not 2D6 plus that, right? Like we, they have talked about how the Firebrand system is Powered by the Apocalypse and Firebrands does not look anything like Apocalypse World, right? So, in fact, I feel like we're still learning about Power by the Apocalypse because I read and played Under Hollow Hills and I'm like, this is so different.
2: I don't um, even see I've not oh, even looked at it yet. So but I hear good. so good stuff. It's
0: so good. It's so and it's also really interesting to play it with people who played a lot of Power by the Apocalypse, because seeing a Power by the Apocalypse Grognard is like one of the most <laughs> amazing experiences I have ever seen. I'm like, wow, <laughs> this system has been around long enough that we get grognards. I was
2: just <laughs> You, you know, it's been around long enough that the grogs are out. That's great. How how far are we from Blades of the Dark grognards?
0: I, I think maybe I, I want to say like four or five more years. Definitely. We're going to be grognarding then. So,
2: Oh, that's hilarious. Um, so I guess, you know, if I were to pull some of Avery's work with this system and put it next to what you ended up with at the end of the day with Oathbreakers. Yeah. I think it'd be easy for me to find the differences, but what did you think was core, right? So how did Oathbreakers end up not being its own system as you made changes? Like what, what makes it still a belonging game? Does that make sense?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Oh, so, Ooh, where do I start? Okay. So this is already a huge thing in that people hesitate to call their belonging outside belonging games belonging outside belonging. So some people like to call it no dice, no masters, because an integral part of those first few games at Avery and oh my gosh, wait one second, Craig, I have to remember his name.
2: Oh, I don't want to just say his last name because that's so rude. But, Take your time. I, and I, and I am embarrassed. I forget his name all the time too. Yeah.
0: I, I don't, I don't know why dream apart. Okay. Benjamin, is it Benjamin? Um, yeah. Benjamin Rosenbaum. Okay. So yeah, absolutely. So belonging outside belonging as built by Avery and Benjamin, right. Was so amazing. And one of the integral parts, which is in the book, and there's a whole chapter about how to make your own game using the same framework is you have to think about how the group that you are focusing on belongs outside of the main mainstream group, right? So in Dream Askew, it's about a queer community and in Dream Apart, it's about a Jewish community, right? Mm-hmm. And so there have been designers who feel like, am I still allowed to call this a belonging outside belonging game if you're playing characters that you know are part of the main group that are not marginalized? In some way, right? So that has already been one of the main things. And so in when I make a BOB B. game, I love that aspect. And I think I think a lot of it has to do with me being a marginalized person. Um, like I like exploring those spaces. So how are these arcanists marginalized? And I went dramatic and was like, oh, there's this conspiracy. <laughs> like, they are investigators. Um <laughs> which has unfortunately led to so many deaths in that game. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> because uh, once again, I have built this thing and not realized how dangerous it is when people are like, no, we have to get at the truth, even if it kills us because the conspiracy, the consp- you know, they'll continue to do this. And I'm like, Oh my gosh. I did not realize. That's a
2: success though. That's a success. <laughs> right. For them to give a shit. That's a success.
0: Yeah, because um, unlike most BOB games, Oath Baker says an endgame, right? Where you confront the conspiracy and it's it's this harrowing game because like you were down to just the major arcana, and there are certain, there's specific cards you need to pull in order to win. And I remember working out the math with Sam because Sam was such a huge help, Sam Zimmerman again. And at first he was like, I think you have to make it slightly easier for the Arcanists to win because if it's just a 50-50 chance and they lose like at least 50% of the time, it's going to feel bad. I was like, okay, you're right. So I made it slightly easier. <laughs> I say that Craig, but in all my playtests, the Arcanists have never won. <laughs> like they have, and it's- Where's well, the gap? I.
2: Between what you think and what's happening.
0: I think it's just like how, I know a lot of us designers love looking at our statistics and our percentages. But sometimes a 50% chance may mean that you 100% never make it, right? Let's just, you know, just based on, because it resets each time, right? The probability. I I don't want to pretend I actually understand math. Please don't, you know, uh, misbelieve that. No, but, you know.
2: And and I haven't and I haven't read the game, so if if at any point go, Craig, you have no idea what you are talking about. But like, think I think about it this way, right? So I have a fifty percent chance of succeeding, a fifty percent chance of failing. I succeed, I just keep playing. But there is a and and there is an unlimited number of successes. None of my none of my successes stop me from playing. But there is a limited number of failures that I do. So even though it's 50, 50, the reality is, is that the clocks on either side are not the same. Yeah. So is that what you saw is that people are riding their characters like they stole them and they just, uh-huh. over time, you're just, you know, you're just going to run out of failures.
0: Yeah. I think what happens is, and so this is so funny, right? Originally in the first few play tests, they're just two possible endings, right? Which is, cause you're trying to, um, <laughs> so basically, in order to successfully destroy the conspiracy, the players just need to draw judgment, the magician and the high priestess, right? And so you only draw cards when you make moves, right? When you make weak mm-hmm. moves in order to, to, to gain them. And so it would encourage people in the end game to keep making these weak moves over and over again because they want to draw the cards and because they only need three and you usually have three players. So it's going to happen, right? And <laughs> What's funny is if things go badly, uh, you only need to, you draw the, the, the hangman, the hero of the tower to means that the conspiracy wins. And so, and so what would happen, what would end up happening is at first, the first play test was they drew two, they felt like they were doing well, but then the conspiracy card would come out and they would come out and there would be two to two and they'd be like, no, we can do it. We can do it. We can do it. Like they're facing down. And I was like, oh no, I have created hubris, you know? And so, and each time they would lose. And so, okay, okay. I'm going to make a new thing where there's a third possible ending, which is you can give up at any time. You can just pull out and then you can, oh, you can, Oh, that's
2: interesting. You can
0: survive and fight the conspiracy again another time.
2: But nobody does it.
0: Yes. Nobody does it, Greg. <laughs> <laughs> nobody does it. <laughs> But <laughs> it's so, it is worse that I created that option because people look at each other and they're like, we're not going to do it. We're not going to give up, even though we know it's something we can do. And the mechanics are right awesome. there.
2: <laughs> that's awesome though. So I love that it exists. And as soon as you said it to me, I'm like, no, he's ever going to do that. Cause I sure as hell wouldn't. But, but how cool is it to know mechanically I could. Right. To, again, have those relationship discussions and 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 the pushing through. So I guess as we wrap up talking about Oathbreakers, if, um you know, you're going to lose. Right. We figure that out, even though maybe by design you're hoping you wouldn't be that way. I'm still working on it. Yeah. It, but at the same time, it sounds like people are coming out the other side of that loss, mm-hmm. really enjoying it. Right.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And it's weird because which is funny because it does feel like those comics again and that original like inspiration, where what ends up happening, because there are some epilogue questions that come up, right? And so I'm very familiar with the ones that if we lose, (laughs) because that happens all the time. So the three questions that the group has to answer is, how is the underworld, the world beyond and the mundane world corrupted forever? And then the second question is, how does magic die and what happens to all arcanists? So these are two very depressing questions. But the last question is what fragment of us survives and how does it embody
2: hope? Right. So it does have hope in it. Yeah. Yeah.
0: And so like what ends up happening is it always creates this very cool moment of we fought And, and it just makes the conspiracy feel that much more powerful, right? Because it is so hard to fight them. And so each time I play tested this and I want to stress like this has been different groups each time, each time The players at the end of it is are say something along the lines of, "It doesn't matter how many times we lose, we just have to win the one time, and the conspiracy is destroyed forever." We just—that's amazing. Yeah, and I was like, "Damn!" Once again, the game being better than than what I envisioned, you know.
2: And and I lied because I said we needed to wrap up on (laughs) oathmaker, so I got another question now. So it sounds to me like again there's a fork in the road here right so one option would be to say you know like 10 candles i need to set the expectations right i need to set the expectation at the beginning of the game you are probably going to lose and you need to be ready for that and stuff and i think 10 candles does a great job right, of that, of, of making it very clue like you're done you're dead you know so let, let now let's play or are you spoiling the ending by doing that does that, like, like I would have to think you have to weigh those two things because it sounds like this awesome moments that you're seeing at the end of all of these losses would be more expected and spoiled if you told them at the beginning. Oh, my God. But I don't know because I, I haven't seen the playtest. test. Yeah, does yeah. that make sense? No,
0: no, it does. It does. Especially because a lot of, uh, I, I have several games that end with a high possibility of tragedy. What does that say about me? But uh, so Once more into the Void is another example, but, but basically that does come up. And this was a conversation that happened where I created a game based on the Wretched and Alone system, which is very cool. It uses cards. I switched to tower cards because I love tower cards uh, and a Jenga tower. What's interesting about the SRD is that uh, Chris Bissett, who created it, they specifically said, this game is meant to give you a false sense of hope this game and the system its meant to make you believe you can survive when that's not going to happen. The odds are very low and that is the whole right. point of the game. And so I wrote on Twitter about how I changed that when I wrote my own Wretched and Alone game also has a dramatic title. It's called in the light of death, the demon cries <laughs> it's, 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 it's this thing that Ray has. Anyway, I, I, I wrote there from the beginning, your demon is not your demon will die no matter what. So the whole point of this game is you're just looking back at those memories as possible last few moments you have and making your peace with it or fighting against it if you want and then finding out what happens after. And I wrote on that Twitter thread, it was very important for me to clearly set what the stakes are because as a marginalized person, it feels like I am often lied to. It feels like I'm often told as long as you play by the rules, as long as you work within the system, you're going to be rewarded. And that's, that's not true most of the time. Right. And right. Right. Yeah. And so it felt, I was like, I am so often gaslit and lied to, I don't want to do that to my players in this game. Right. And so when Chris read that, they were very cool about it. They were like, I didn't even realize this is such a good point. You know, we should change it in the future. And so, so what you say is, like, I realize that as I design games, once again, because, you know, um, we don't know how these games are going to shake out, but I feel like, oh, I need to be clearer about, my, about setting expectations while also not removing the fun of discovery, right? But, like, so I personally tend to err on the side of, properly setting expectations, uh, because it would, it would be nice if life came with a manual that was better at. Yeah, yeah.
2: that would be nice. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) So, so do you make it clear at the beginning of Oathbreakers then? Because it's, because it's one thing to play Oathbreakers with you at the table.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
2: It's another thing to play Oathbreakers when you're not there. Do you make it clear at the beginning of the book that everybody has lost so far?
0: Uh, I'm working on the new version, which will have that. (laughs) (laughs)
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Definitely.
0: I'm planning on actually putting in a little update on the itch page, which is a nice thing about working on itch games is that everyone understands that these are living games, that you're still working on them, um, which is why I'm having a harder time with learning the new skill of finishing a game with uh, with Arhan, once we're into the point of Keys, like getting these games printed, whoa, whoa, so different. Different skill set that I have not uh, used as much. So, but yeah, definitely... Um, And that's another thing I love about, about creating games on itch or indie games in general is that players understand that this is like a living, breathing thing, right? Which is super fun.
2: Well, and we get the joy of getting the updates right yeah. and, that, and it's something that, that that's a lot of fun uh, to do as well so guys we're going to take a quick break when we get back from this break um, we have covered so much in this first segment which I really makes me happy and and uh, I you know I was talking to Ray before we went live and I you know one of the things I always tell my guests um, audience you don't know this but I tell my guests that we're going to go where we go right and um, that and Ray and I just proved of how really fascinating that can be so when we get back from this break I do want to talk about our haunt because I I am fascinated by the game, but I really want to talk more about Apocalypse Keys. We'll be right back. You like science fiction, right? You love playing games, maybe even role-playing games. But what if you can't get your friends together for a game night? If you love games like Mothership or Orbital Blues, check out Deadbelt, a card-based space-western solo-strategy RPG about skillful and desperate scavengers, Picking over the remains of junked starships in hopes of a juicy payday. In it, you deal with lurking dangers. Push your luck and walk away with enough cred to keep on flying. Of course, you might get eaten by lurking aliens or run afoul of rival scavengers or face the murderous ghosts of long dead spacers. (laughs) <laughs> no one said life in the dead belt was going to be easy. For more information on this and all of Sean and Abby Drake's games, swing over to a com. The link's in the show notes. So listeners, you all know that um, after I've checked Twitter, after I've checked my email, I end up always scrolling through Kickstarter (laughs) and um, I hate money. So it doesn't take much right for me to pledge. And but I will say that um, I, I, I remember distinctly. Flipping through the page, and again, not realizing it was you. <laughs> flipping through the page and going, oh, our haunt, and it was the art, right? The little splash page on my phone. that said, oh, I'm going to click on that, right? And reading through it, and how do I say this? It was nothing I'd never read before, but I had never read it in that order. So what I want to do is give the quick blurb for the audience that aren't familiar with it, because it is shockingly familiar and unique all at the same time. So here's the promise. We are ghosts. We're in a house we don't recognize. We have a handful of memories, and these memories are brief moments and flashes of barely something. The living are nearby, and they encroach on our space, making their demands. Worse, there is a thing in the walls. It is ancient, inhuman, hungry, yearning, and angry. And real quick, Ray, I did not... I backed it without digging very deep into it. Right. So I didn't get a play test on it. I I didn't read iterations of it. I, the first time I sat down and really understood the book is when I got it in the mail, which by the way, gorgeous, goddamn book. Um, Just a beautiful book. And. uh, I don't know how to describe how unique this system is. So let's quickly go through and talk to me like where this came from from the start so what is the core idea and where does the core idea come from and i want to work through it so people can understand why this game knocked me off knocked me sideways in a very good way
0: yeah yeah so the game came to be because uh and this is an answer for a lot of my games it was an itchio game jam (laughs) Mm -hmm. and specifically this one was focused on creating a belonging outside belonging game and avery was very generous she went out of her way to provide a free copy of like the portion of the pdf that describes how to create a belonging outside belong game and so when i sat down to write the game i just knew okay it's going to be a bob game but what does that mean and of course i wanted to do ghosts i really so ghosts are such a fascinating topic but also here in the philippines it's very normal everyone has a friend who has a third eye open is kind of the concept Interesting, right like it's I cannot describe how normalized it is here. Like I have met people when you ask them if they believe in ghosts, they say, no, when they show up, I just don't look at them. And I don't don't interact with them. And I'm like, you know, I don't think that's how it works. (laughs) Let
2: me ask the question again.
0: (laughs) And, And I have to stress how, like when I moved here from Singapore as a child, Singapore is very logical in comparison. And I was so confused and but now I understand, right? It's just—it's just a different. There are way too. Everybody has a ghost story, at least one. I have now had several from living here too. So, uh, but yeah, and and I wanted to like sit down, and write a ghost story. And when I write and design games, and this is true until now, like especially from the beginning, it's all very like, I don't plan out anything. I never outline anything. I just—I'm a very strange, boring Capricorn where I start from the beginning and I end at the end. So I just was like, okay, I'm just gonna sit down and write the playbooks in order. Right? And so, and I just wanted to explore what it meant to be a ghost. And because I'm just writing from the heart and I'm not really thinking about it, memories came up, right? Because not remembering things is something I'm very intimately familiar with. Like I I want to give an example. This has happened to me in so many occasions where my mom will talk about a family friend, right? Like a dear friend of my brother. And I will say, well, what did his mom say? And my mom is like, Ray, we went to his mom's funeral like last year. And I'm like, what? And I I really...
2: And this is how do you reconcile that? Because that's never happened to me. So how do you how to like because that's a like a reality slap on a somewhat regular basis. Regular, absolutely. Have you learned just to reconcile it and just believe it and move on? Or yeah, like it
0: actually it was really difficult at first, especially because like once again, as a marginalized person, as a as a femme perceived person, people try to gaslight you uh, on, on a regular basis, right? So it. When I was really struggling with it, I had to learn that there are specific people I can trust. So I owe a lot to my partner, oh, Matthew. Like I just right. really had to. And I had to like fight that urge to fight back when. And this happens on a daily basis sometimes with Matthew where he'll say things like, oh, yeah, this is what you said the last three times that, that, that you know, you Uh, But the good thing is I can rewatch a movie and a book and uh, (laughs) (laughs) almost like the first time.
2: Sit down, Ray. (laughs) Vader is Luke's father.
0: (laughs) Oh my gosh. Wait, wait. I know we won't include this in the podcast. So I just want to say real quick. One of my favorite moments was someone had been spoiled on all the big things like that, right? Like Vader being Luke's father. But when we watched the, the, um, the 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 last one the 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 jedi return of the jedi when vader was dying in luke's arms she was like he's not he's not gonna die is he he went through all of that and he said he's not gonna die right and we were all like oh shit (laughs) she was spoiled about all these big things but no one's she was so mad she was like sobbing i was also sobbing anyway we're not gonna include the podcast i just wanted to
2: no 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 i i mean trust me i mean look how like i was when jedi came out i think i was like 12. So, like, you know, each of those movies changed who I am as a human being. Um, and, uh, you know, and, and the one thing is uh, and you say we're not going to include this in the podcast. Is we are exactly <laughs> including this in the podcast. So one of the big things like I'm not as hard on the um, the most recent three movies as a lot of people are, because um, I do still have the ability to put on my 12-year-old uh, skin and go and sit and watch a movie and enjoy it, right? And each of those movies had moments that were just really just delightful moments. Um, but the one thing where I will just grab on to the grogiest grognard out there and, you know, Captain Shithead who's trying to relive his 12-year-old life um, is the... Um, Return of the Emperor. I know. Oh my God, same. And he, and here's why: because it invalidates everything that Vader did. I know. Right. So Vader makes this huge sacrifice at yes. the end to save his son, and yes. his true redemption arc is over, yes. and everything. And then Palpatine shows up again. I'm like, well, what
0: the? What was it for? <laughs> what was it, it so for? Angry. I don't
2: know. Oh same. Same.
0: I, I'm, I'm exactly there with you. I, I still enjoy a lot of the new movies, but that part, just like. <gasps> destroys me.
2: <laughs> well, and it was, you know, and I'm sure, you know, it's one of those things where, you know, he was trying to, to have a, a big surprise at the end, you know, and a callback and stuff like that. And, you know, I, it, um, I'm just surprised that nobody as groggy as me didn't go, no, no, dude, you can't do that. That, that like, but you can't do that. So any Hulu. So <laughs> let's, let's talk a little bit more here about, um, apocalypse keys. So, um, you know, while people are listening to this, we've they can get their hands on it. They can go pledge it. Um, they can read through it. Um, so we're recording this beforehand, as I like to do. Um, we've talked a little bit about it, but we haven't really said what the game is. So, you sit down with Evil Hat. The conversations are, are starting and, you know, what do you say to the people at Evil Hat that made them go, ooh, this know. is interesting because this was not the only idea. It's obvious that you have many ideas out there that could become fully baked, right, that could be on Kickstarter like our, our haunt. And so I'm curious to know, like, how does our haunt make it to Kickstarter. Why does that cream rise to the top? Why does Apocalypse Keys rise to the top? What's different about oh. them versus their, what sounds like 75 other games that are sitting around in notebooks at your house? Oh
0: my gosh, no, that's, that's, no, that's not even an exaggeration. There are 40 on Itch.io alone. Uh, and so much more for my Patreon. Um, you know, the funny thing is, and I'm gonna reveal how little confidence I have in myself. I only pitched my first game this year to a publisher so
2: that's crazy to me
0: yeah so so once we're into the void our haunt, apocalypse keys it was someone else coming up to me and saying we want to publish this and you know we should go to crowdfunding right and so our haunt was possum creek games j dragon jamie saying like ray how do you feel about you know possum creek games publishing our haunt because i really feel like this is one of your so Jamie is like one of my dearest friends, absolutely my best friend. Um, and Jamie has guided me through this panini um, and really helped me believe in myself as a designer. And Jamie was like, when I look at our hot, I think people really overlook how good this game is. And it really feels like this is so core to who you are as a person and a designer. I would love to publish this. And so after I got over screaming and crying, um, I said, yes, but also I want to do a final version. Like I want to be able to do right by the game because I've learned so much since it was my first Bob game. Right. I've made, I didn't know that. Yeah. And I've made like eight since then. So I was like, I really want to iterate what I've learned. And so the, with Apocalypse Keys, the funny thing is, um, so Sean approached me about like buy and returning home, which is my supernatural cyberpunk B.O.B game. And so that is still in the works that is going to be hopefully as well published by evil hat as well. But I started working on apocalypse keys because I was like, I was possessed by inspiration as, as many of us are. And I, I was working on it. And as I worked on it, right. I worked on it for like a year and I was like telling Matthew and other people and Jamie and, You know, I was like, I love this game so much. This game is so big because Powered by the Apocalypse is a, this game is so huge. It's a lot to design for. Um, I was like, I'm just praying that someone will publish this because it is so much work. Like I was putting in 12 hours a day into Apocalypse Keys for like several months, even and it is even after Evil had picked it, like it is easily... Oh, like the final PDF count, we're around like three hundred eighty pages, I think. Like it.
2: Oh my god, I did not know it that. It is chunky.
0: It is my chunky kaiju oh. baby. It is. It is bigger than. Oh, but I'm also working on Twilight Throne, this Forge of the Dark game, which is starting to get as big. But anyway, so so, it is easily the biggest, biggest. We're a long way from four pages, sad Mecha Jam. Right? Um. But, but even before that point, it was already huge, right? I had been working on for so long. it was we were doing so much play testing. I was running like three or four groups a week uh for half a year, just play testing the heck out of the game. And I was just like praying. I was like, please, universe
2: so Ray, I'm gonna argue with you for a second. <laughs> and I'm sorry, but you're trying to give the impression that that people are picking your games, right. And that, that you're trying to give, you're trying to, you're you're alluding that, that Sean picked your game, but I don't think that's true because it sounds like you picked apocalypse, apocalypse keys, and then it was found. Right. So, so I I need to know, (laughs) I'm back to my original question, which you tried to dodge. (laughs) What is it? What is it about apocalypse keys that, that, that just, I mean, it, it 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 grabbed you right. and and has you working 12 hours even before Sean knocks on your door. So what the hell's going on?
0: Oh my gosh. I think like number one, like I was inspired by Hellboy and I love Hellboy so much. I love the films and I love the comics so much. Comics are so good. So good. Right. And I was really I just love trying to translate something I love into a TTRPG. It is one of my favorite things to do. It is so much fun. And to find your own voice while you're doing it just absolutely addicting mm-hmm. i love it so much and but as i was working on apocalypse keys i think it was really like the panini had just about started like a, maybe a month into working on apocalypse keys and it was such a balm to the soul
1: <laughs> to yeah. to
0: create these monsters who are fighting against the apocalypse and and like but, and, and as I was play testing it, as I was working on it, it was I put I think every creator does this, right, but I was putting so much of myself into the game, but I was just putting more and more into the game, um and it really like the fall in one of the playbooks, which is like a character that is like a divine being that fell from you know from grace uh is just me going like, well, I'm going to make a playbook that's just for me. If I was playing this game, this is the playbook. I would.
2: I, I have also. I'm not even going to put it in the book.
0: <laughs> I have never been able to play it because every time I play a game, someone else wants it. So, like, which is, you know, understandable. But, um, <laughs> but yeah, like I, I put so much of myself into the game. It was just everything I love about TTRPGs. Everything I love about PBTA. So it was supernatural. It was about solving mysteries because like, Before being able to get there, um, mystery is a genre I love, but never enjoyed in TTRPGs, right? So I was frustrated. I I know a lot of people love Tales from the Loop and all these other games, but I was just frustrated by them. It just wasn't working for me as a player, as a GM. But then I played- It's hard to get them right.
2: Yeah, it is. At the table, not even designing them. It's hard to get them right at the table.
0: Yeah, it really is. And so when I played Brindlewood Bay, I was (laughs) like, oh, this is so much fun. And so that was what, when I finally had that technology, and I asked Jason Cordova if I could, because this was before Car from Brindawood Bay came out, and now it's a game that people, so this was early on. I was like, can I use this for Apocalypse Keys? And Jason was very gracious, very cool about it. And so, like, there was just, and it was just so much joy taking the bonds from Hearts of Wolin, taking the corruption mechanic from Urban Shadows, taking the meltdown mechanic from Passion de las Pachones, taking like, all these different things I love in PPT and TTRPGs. And then these things I love in the genre and the themes and the monstrosity. And it was just like, and, and Sean, when he approached me about it, he was like, I know we're working on Balik Bayan, but I can tell how much you love Apocalypse Keys. Right. And so, um, yeah. And then when we, when we play tested it, when we, when we got to play at an actual play, he was like, this is a really, good game i would love it if we could publish it at, oh my gosh when sean asked i was like what's <laughs> a good cry?"
2: oh that validation has got to be such yeah. a big deal especially from somebody you respect like sean right, right. Like, sean's looked at a lot of goddamn games right, right.
0: exactly exactly and at the time yeah. sean and i were like we were, we, were, we were getting close but we weren't like but i really consider sean like such a such a dear friend now and it's amazing i get to say that but Um, The fact that he could really recognize, like he read through Apocalypse Keys and he was like, I can tell how much you love this game, you know? And so, yeah.
2: So we talked with Oathbreakers, we talked about something I thought was very interesting, which was you discovering the game by watching other people play it, Mm -hmm. right? There was aspects of Mm Oathbreakers that you didn't know were there Mm -hmm. until you saw somebody else playing the violin you built. Mm -hmm. So with Apocalypse Keys, Mm -hmm. you have play tested, it sounds like eight days a week. (laughs) What what have the players revealed to you? What have people playing Apocalypse Keys revealed to you about what the game is?
0: Oh, that's so funny. So uh, <laughs> what I've learned is that even if there are mysteries to solve and the world is ending, people still want to kiss each other. <laughs> so... <laughs>
2: I can give them fangs, I can make their, make their lips made out of worms.
0: Right. And it's just, isn't
2: that funny? They, they did that desire to connect. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And, and, you know, it's funny because Thirsty Sword Lesbians is very openly a queer game and it's in the title. And I think what surprised people about Apocalypse Keys is how queer it is as well, right? Like it's very based on emotions and connections. And so, I nearly called the game Apocalypse Kisses at one point because of that. Like there's a chapter, there's a mini chapter in the book called, I almost called this game Apocalypse Kisses, explaining your game might get interrupted by all the emotions happening all the time. Like I would have GMs come up to me uh, and say, I have a hard time focusing on the mystery because of all the stuff that keeps happening. Right. And so, so instead what I, what I designed in response, and this is what I love about playtesting, right. Is I get to design and so there, there are different ways you can do it, right? There's the reactive negative, you know, um, thing where you see where someone tells you what they think the problem is. And then I notice like a novice designer mistake, which, you know, I also used to do is you do this knee jerk reaction of, okay, I'm going to change it into what you think it should be, right? which is yep. one of the worst things you can do,
2: Terrible. Uh, yep.
0: period, right? Because as a player, we are very good at... At like knowing something is wrong, but we don't know why something is wrong, right? And we don't know how to fix it. So those are two very different things. But so there but there's the other thing I like, which is I see what people are doing, and then I'm like, oh, I wanna build something to mechanically support that because I like what is happening spontaneously at the table. I wanna make it easier for that to happen, especially if it's gonna happen naturally anyway right i just want to give people more permission to do it and so that definitely happened at apocalypse keys where i pushed further and further into the emotionality into the queerness connecting it um into these things and bridging the gap between the emotionality and the mystery stuff that was like so so rewarding so so much fun but one of my favorite things is Early on in playtest, people would be like, I want to become a harbinger faster because, like, you mark ruin. And so, as you mark, so when you get these ruin moves, you don't roll because the rest of the time in Apocalypse Keys, right? In PPTA, we're used to the higher you roll, the better it is. Yep. But in Apocalypse Keys, because there are no stats, uh, you do things to generate tokens, right? It's very BOB esque mm-hmm. in that way. I got the idea from Liberte. Uh, which is an amazing game about kids in this horrible post-apocalyptic world. Very sad, very difficult to play, but beautiful. And so you do certain things within the playbook, within their emotional themes to get tokens. And then you add, it's up to you. You add zero to three tokens per roll. The Uh thing is, you're trying to hit a sweet spot of eight to ten. Because if you fail, you fail. If you miss, you miss. But if you go over, if you hit 11+, plus, you have a disastrous success because you are unable to control oh, the cool. monster within you and you go too far, out, right? And so it becomes this question of how much of your darkness are you going to invest in this role? Like, do you want to try to hit that 8 to 10 spot where you are in control of the monster within or are you willing to do this no matter what, even if it means you disastrously succeed because you have to win no matter what? Right. You have to get this no matter what.
2: What a neat way to in a much cleaner way, bring that wife, white wolf mechanic right into the game, because that's one of the I wasn't a big uh, masquerade guy either. Right. Um, I bounced off it a little bit. But the one thing I did like about it was I forgot I even forgot what it's called. It's not corruption. What is it? is it corruption? Oh my gosh! What is, God, what is that mechanic? To. Yeah, was, yeah, but you know what I'm talking right. about, right? It's so that exactly. ticking that that that, exactly. that causes you to lose dies, or gain die or whatever. Well, what a clean way to do that, right? And I love that idea. Like, yeah, like because normally you get go, I've got three tokens, so I'm going to spend three tokens, right? But then you have to really think. Well, shit! What if I spent too many tokens, right? And you go, oh, that's cool. Yeah, like yeah. That. And
0: once again, this is from Libertad. It was like instead it was bile, and it was like how much how difficult it is to be a child? Once again, the thematic things at play, and so. What's really cool in Apocalypse Keys is you have access to ruin moves where you don't even have to roll. You just have to mark ruin. And in fact, in most of these moves, you choose to mark either one or two ruin. And it depends on how much you are willing to lean into the harbinger within you, right? Because you were here fighting back the apocalypse, fighting back the harbingers, but you, my dear monster, might become a harbinger yourself one day. And so like what is really fun was early on in the playtest, I had people saying like, oh, man, I want to earn ruin faster. I want to become a harbinger faster. I want to hurdle towards the darkness faster. I was like, OK, so so I tweak things in order for that to happen. <laughs> and then within four sessions with the same set of groups, when they were close to becoming a harbinger, they were like, oh, no. I want to go back to being human and i was like
2: whoa 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 <laughs> like, you told you, me you you ordered the shots you drank them <laughs>
0: <laughs> and so it became this really interesting like because i was like oh but i don't want to undo it i don't want you to like so i padded it out a little bit like you only you need to mark less ruin to earn ruin advances and then it's this thing where like the more ruin advances you have the more opportunities you have to gain Ruin, right. But then I also wanted to like, so I created like more, more advances before you become a Harbinger, but then I also created these special moves where the monsters can like help each other. So they can like, like one of the moves from the newer playbooks is uh, your ruin on my lips where you can take someone else's ruin and transfer to your own track instead.
2: Oh, that's cool. Right. And that's cool. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Stuff like that. So, so I just, but that was so much fun. That was like, I still remember the look of their faces. when they're I want to become a monster. Like, Oh no, I'm so close to being lost forever.
2: People are people. I'll <laughs> tell you. It's so funny. It's so funny. So th- this is a question that I'm framing with inside of apocalypse keys, but it really, I think covers a lot of what we've talked about. Um, and i'm going to i'm going to do my best to phrase this and if i fuck it up just say craig that was a <laughs> terrible question i love how you've woven in so much of who you are into these games and it sounds like you've also woven in the journey that you've been making to to uncover and discover aspects of yourself that either you didn't recognize or for whatever reason, right? I think that's really amazing. And I, I, the easy question is, is how, how incredible is it to see people who have similar experiences as you discover the same thing in the game, right? And, 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 and I'm not minimizing that, mm-hmm. but I think that's the easy question. Mm-hmm. Here's the hard question. How, how have Western cis white dudes like me reacted to the game? And has there been a spectrum? Has there been surprises? Uh, like what's happening there? And we, we touched on it a little bit, how you, about some people were bouncing off of it, but I, I'm really curious about that. And the reason I say that is because I think there's a lot of people that say, well, and you hear this with monster hearts, right? Well, if I'm not queer, like how am I going to play this? Or, you know, coyote and crow. If I'm, you know, if I'm not an indigenous person, how am I going to play coyote and crow? Um, which is it's kind of nice for cis white dudes to feel marginalized for like two seconds, right, so let's talk about let's not even get into that like that was long overdue yeah. but but do you do you understand what I'm saying yeah, yeah, like no, like totally. like I, in play tests, what have you seen?
0: yeah, and I you know so this is i'm gonna be really honest with you, Greg. The open play test for apocalypse keys the the feedback was really harrowing um yeah, it took months to get through. Sean was with me. The entire time we went through pages and pages, but um <laughs> I ended up having to go through therapy. <laughs> like it was really bad. Oh god, bless. I, I started, I was having like uh PTSD symptoms and it was affecting my design. It got to the point where um I couldn't design for like about I realized I was having this screaming voice in my head that was repeating the stuff from the feedback. Um, right about like how this game was so because what people were upset at was they're like oh this game is too emotional this game is asking me to be so creative uh this <laughs> this game is giving me too much power as a player uh and so and that's just how i design games right i just right you know and so sean was there to talk me through it um but it was it was really really hard Um, and I think like, so one of the many things that feel very inherently unfair to me is, uh, as a marginalized person, we are so used to not seeing ourselves in the things that we consume and we enjoy, right? We are just not, we are invisible and we are not there. Right.
2: And I take it for granted.
0: Right. Right. And you know, it's, um, it, it's, so we are used to it right? So queer people are used to consuming stories that are about straight people. Uh, People of color are used to consuming stories that are about white people. And so when we are told these things, like, how can I do this if I am not this? It's like, well, no one's asked that question for for us. No one goes like, well. That's incredible. Yeah. And so it got, like, actually, I, when I ran Bluebeard's Bride at a local the same local mini convention i had to run the game three different times for three different cis dudes um because they wanted to make sure that men wouldn't be offended if i ran the game at the
2: (laughs) yeah yeah and we we, we're we're fucking
0: fragile (laughs) (laughs) it was it was each time i ran the game all the fans would be like oh yeah this is the female fam experience it's very cathartic and quite a few of the men would be like, this is horrible. This is awful. Why? Like they were just.
2: Isn't that something?
0: Yeah. So it was. Yeah. And so it was so hard for me to make sense of the feedback. Um, Sean was there to be like, oh no, that's not useful. And, And Sean really noticed a difference, right? Like there was another open play test going on at the same time. And Sean could also compare to the feedback that thirsty sword lesbians had. And the feedback I was getting was way more harsh.
2: And so I'm sorry, Ray, when you say harsh, is it harsh because it, there was a gap in expectations? Is it harsh because there was themes that people not, didn't bounce off of that went after them? Like, what do you mean by harsh? I don't know if I totally understand that. So, And, and, and maybe you don't want to talk about it. No, so, no, no so, it's okay. okay.
0: I, just, I just know that when I talk about it, a lot of people won't believe me. Um, but for example, I noticed, cause we had two discord servers going on. We had the apocalypse keys playtest server, and we had the project Perseus playtest server at the same time. Strauss was on that server. Um, and I noticed that the number of questions Strauss would get would be far fewer. And the number of comments of, oh, this game is so cool. I mean, both Strauss and, you know. Uh, his partner. Like, uh, I don't want to make it sound like it's just Strauss, but Strauss was the most active on the server, as far as I could tell at the time. Uh, And so they were getting like a lot of like, oh, this game is so great. They were getting hardly any questions. And with me, um, I would get so many questions. I would get so many people saying things like, well, have you read Masks? Do you know that PBTA game? Or have you seen Monster of the Week? Um, Gotcha. I had people who were being very condescending.
2: Credibility and just doubting all of that. Interesting.
0: And the thing is, I am used to having my credibility questioned. Like that is just that is just something I know will happen just because of who I am. But it was very difficult to see how I had to keep doing it and other people didn't have to. And a lot of the feedback, like Sean pointed out how, you know, we have a similar mechanic in Aegon. With bonds and people did not have these same complaints. And and Sean is like, I recognize some of these names, right? Um, so it's really this inherent. Um, <laughs> it's just knowing that I am not a cis head white guy is just enough for people to question me more. Um and so it it just became this very difficult, it was such a difficult time because. We had to go through the feedback to really find what people really needed us to work on right while going through all of the systemic uh you know racist sexist homophobic stuff without people right and and it's harder because if no one is screaming at you it is much harder to recognize these (laughs) systematic microaggressions right so josh once again was like i was going back and forth on the emotionality like that was something i was really like struggling with like should i Tone it down, should I make it like, and josh was like uh <laughs> I, I, uh josh is uh is is queer and um <laughs> but he's also like cis and white, and he was like, no, 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 these are just white dudes being upset that you're telling them to have feelings, you know, like you shouldn't listen to them <laughs> uh so josh really I really needed other people to helped me regain my confidence and to and to really believe. Like I I really almost gave up on making games. Um, it was very- That sucks. Yeah. Well
2: I'm glad you got the other side, but that sucks. Yeah, yeah.
0: It was it was really it was so hard. It was really, really difficult. But I'm really glad um that I made it. And and you know, I'm sure this is going to happen again. Like I think I was really harrowed when I was talking to some some people of color and when I told them about what happened and what I was struggling through with the Discord server and, and the feedback stuff, they were saying, "Well, that was the problem. They let you. They let people have access to you. Like when you're a person of color, you cannot let people have open access to you." And this is not something I realized because I'm a I'm I'm like half Australian, half Filipino, but I'm still Filipino in the Philippines. So this is really my first time interacting in these dominantly white spaces. And so I was just really shocked. Right. It once again, it's about being told if you play within the rules of the system, blah, 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 but it's, but it's not true. Like it doesn't apply to you. Uh, Yeah. And so, so ironically though, I still want to say that it was people like Sean and, and especially Josh, like it was really, you know, my friend Sherry, who also like helped so much for me going through this. So, uh, they were the ones who really told me you have to like stick by, you have to stand by this. This is who you are. This is what makes the game beautiful. This is what makes it good. And, and, and I think at the end of the day, I had to recognize that if it makes people like me feel more welcome in the space, then that's ultimate, ultimately what matters more than me making room for people who get to take up space all the time without thinking about it. Yeah.
2: What's neat about these types of games for me is there's so much shit I don't know, right? There's just stuff I don't see right and and, and it's something I talked about my talk to my wife about a lot because she's the person who's close to closest to me, but like there's experiences she has as a woman that I'm so oblivious to mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that like stuff I've took for granted that I just did not know was happening. Right. And that doesn't mean it's okay that I didn't know. Right. So I'm not excusing myself as part of that. But what's interesting about and this gets right back to our beginning of our conversation, is that how unique is this hobby that it gives all of us the experiences to be monsters? Yeah. Right. And and, and to safely explore the themes of that. But I'm playing a monster. Right. But I get to, you know, and people talk about, you know, I've talked to many people, players, especially that said after playing I figured out I was queer yeah after playing I realized that I was trans Mm -hmm. and it it, it's something that's just so beautiful and unique about this system and you know and sometimes that discovery doesn't have to be something as as big as figuring out you're queer you're trans right it can be small things right that you discover but it's something that's really beautiful about this hobby
0: yeah yeah and like I feel like a really big moment for me that really came to me embracing that was I added this playbook that wasn't there in the open playtest version, which is called The Hungry. Um, mainly because I watched the What If Marvel cartoon series, which I really loved. It was so good. Uh, and there was an episode of Doctor Strange, and I was like, Oh my god, this is an apocalypse keys character. I need to make this playbook. And then I was like, Sean. I know this is going to be work, but I think I need to work on a new playbook. (laughs) So I worked on it, but as I was working on it, I think by this point, like working with other people, and this is the joy of like Evil Hat is being able to work with different people to help bring the game together. So Josh helped me realize like, oh, there's a thematic arc of emotion in each playbook, which I did not realize was there until he pointed it out. And I was like, what is it going to be for the hungry? And I realized for the hungry playbook, I wanted it to be about struggling to be close to someone while struggling with the body that you are in, like so there's a lot of themes of body horror and this hunger and this and and I realized i was, as I was designing it, it was me struggling with my gender dysphoria as a trans mask who is unable to easily access uh you know um gender affirming therapy here in the Philippines. It's very difficult. I've been trying for the last year. Uh, it's been really hard. And so I put all of that into the playbook, right? And I was so unapologetic about it. I and it was so yeah. funny because when we playtested tested it later in a closed playtest, <laughs> Lowell, who created Changelink, so this is a whole circle thing, was running the game. Uh and he was so scared of the playbook. <laughs> he was like Ray, every time you open your mouth to say something, I'm so terrified about this. And so it was the most monstrous of the monstrous playbooks, right?
2: Isn't that something? And in
0: all the other playtests, they were like, "Oh, it felt so good." Playing the hungry, and like you know, we had like we had one person who was like a vampire type, and then we had me. I was playing Dorian Gray, who, cool. yeah, yeah, so it was super fun, really great, feeding off of people, replacing with like undesirable, uh, uncontrollable desire and stuff. Really fun, but. I really felt myself just come into my own as a person creating a playbook being like, I'm just going to create from where I am and introduce this experience to people. And, you know, they may play it and they may, they may understand, you know, Oh, maybe I am, you know, connecting to gender dysphoria in a way that I didn't realize, but it also doesn't matter if they don't. Right. It's just a new enriched nuanced experience that they could not, have gotten from someone who didn't have my particular set of experiences.
2: Yeah, and the other thing I would think would be true there too is they might discover something you didn't even put in, there, yeah, right? 100%. Or something that the, an aspect of them that you know nothing about, right? Because that's their truth and their experience, but through that playbook it could it could uncover that. So guys, um Before we get into, you know, all the plugs and everything, just real quick, everything, obviously you scroll down, you already know all the links are there. But one of the last things I always like to do, Ray, is um, we spend, you know, two hours talking about stuff you make. But I want to know what you consume real quick. So is there anything recently that you have just been devouring? So whether it be binge watching a show or a series of books you couldn't put down or uh, a video game or a TTRPG that you've discovered that you just you can't get out of your head?
0: Oh, so there are two things. Number one, uh, recently I've been watching The Sandman on Netflix. <laughs> it is so good. All of us, all of my designer friends are like, must resist urge to create Sandman RPG. Very good stuff. Really, really loved it. Um, especially because like, I read the Sandman comics late. I was once again not cool enough to be into World of Darkness. <laughs> Or The Sandman, have the money for it. So I used to just go to the bookstore, read it for free and go home. So uh, I really felt like I have made it because I watched The Sandman and I was like, I can just order the first volume and afford it. Like,
2: <laughs> uh, Trust me, Ray, I love... I love buying stuff for 12 year old me. Yeah. And if you, if you walk around like my bookshelf and stuff like that, and the games I buy, like I, that was a huge revelation for me is that what I was doing is I was taking my adult money and satisfying the hunger that I had as a kid. I know,
0: no, that's exactly it. That's exactly it. And then it's
2: so satisfying to do that so though. Like, like fuck it, I'm going to buy Sandman.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I, and, it, and it's so great. I love, how what they did, what changes they made, it made it so much better. Bring it's so
2: beautiful, and you can tell Neil's been there, right? Neil has been there through the process, and yeah. the um, I had a conversation about this with somebody else, and I don't know if you've watched The Expanse, but in the same way, but a different way, the same thing happened with The Expanse, right? The the books were good, and then the same that Corey, which is two people, they went and they are head writers of the series. Made a bunch of changes. Wow. All of them are great, oh. and I saw. And, and, and so, if you don't get a chance, The Expanse is really worth watching just for that experience yeah. of seeing. Wow! And, and Neil Gaiman's talked about. It. He's like, I have a chance to write Sandman again.
0: Yeah, him. and it really feels like it, yeah.
2: it which is awesome. Like for it's him, so it has beautiful. to be right. It's like it's like he's, it's like, so it's like he's designing an niche
0: Yeah, exactly. Because like that was one of his first big things, right? Yeah. So that is that is one huge obsession I've had. I love it so much. Um, and the other thing is, <laughs> I've been playing a lot of Destiny too. I love, I loved video games. There's this new season, Season of Plunder, where you get to be a pirate. It's very good. I love video games. I'm, uh, yeah, yeah. I yeah. do too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I so too. I get to, I, I play Destiny like almost every day. It's, um, and it's also, it's also fun because I cannot think of how to make it into a video, into a TTRPG. Um, cause I get, I cannot turn off my designer brain. I haven't been able to watch Godzilla versus King Kong because every time I start watching it, I go, Oh, this is fortune to dark in two phases. And this happens and that happens, but destiny, I get to play it and not think about it.
2: Here's, and I feel bad on this. I'm going to edit out cause I can't remember, but, mm-hmm. um, have you messed around with Spencer Campbell's Lumen yet?
0: I have. Spencer is like a good friend actually, which is okay. Which is- so,
2: so, um, and what's the name of his destiny game? Is, is it light? light?
0: That's right, Light.
2: Light. Okay, all right, gotcha. Okay, um, has that not satisfied your TTRPG, or is there more to be done?
0: I so I really love Light. I really love what Spencer is doing in the Lumen. I like I've uh, I've created a game. I haven't. It hasn't come out yet in the Lumen system, and I love it. But what I really love about Destiny is is just the idea that you are playing these immortal warriors who cannot die, who have been around for thousands of years. How does that fuck you up? You know? And so that is not present in, in light, but that's because. The butt mashing like, is in light. Yeah, which is good. And it's a <laughs> yeah. great power fantasy, super satisfying But I haven't figured out how to bring that emotionality yet. And because of that, I I can just play it without thinking about it.
2: (laughs) That's awesome. That's awesome. Um, So, Ray, um, if somebody wants more Ray, where's the best place for them to go?
0: So the best place to go is actually my Patreon. It's been a little slow lately, but I usually put out regular videos where I talk about the games I'm working on and I release like early. So Apocalypse Keys, the whole time I was working on it was coming out on Patreon for quite a while. So that was really fun. Uh, So people get to see uh, and I get to share what I've learned. And so that's a patreon.com slash games, but you can also find me on Twitter at temporal hiccup, where I post a lot of Sailor Moon gifs and I talk about the games I'm working on And finally, you can find me on temporalhiccup.itch.io, where I release my games. Um, Yeah, so that's where you can find me online.
2: So there is a lot of things you can spend Friday morning doing that doesn't involve wasting two hours talking to me. So I want you to know how much I appreciate you doing it.
0: No, I had so much fun. This is such a great time, Craig. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, good.
2: (laughs) I'm glad. And you, you've been listening this whole time, like the whole thing, and we're at the end. So I appreciate you listening. Take care.
1: We hope you enjoyed this episode. Subscribe to Tabletop Talk and share it with your friends. Check out our content on YouTube and Twitch. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook and stay updated on everything coming from Third Floor. All the links are in the show notes. Take care. Floor heads.
2: Wow. That was awesome. Yeah. Thank you.
0: Yeah. This has been so much fun already.
2: <laughs> oh, this is, this is exactly what I always hope for. Um, so this is great. This is great. Um, I'm going to be a little conscious of time, um, and I want to make sure the majority of what we talk about is apocalypse keys. So I'm probably going to I'm not going to skate over our haunt, but I'm probably not going to dig in as deep with our haunt. Um, not because I don't want to, but but I feel like we've also talked about a lot right, of this stuff, right? Because um, we covered so much of your process in this first game. So um, let me figure out how I want to bring us back.
1: Uh, oh hey are you still here wow um
2: well the episode is over but if you're bored why not go to patreon.com and support the show for as little as a dollar a month yeah you can just scroll down scroll down and yeah get the link it's Patreon that makes this and all of our other content possible. Don't you want to join the other floor heads on the Patreon Discord? Anyway, thanks for sticking around. Take care. Bye.